0: This week, um, we get to get into um, Aristotle, who was the student of Plato. Um, We finished up last week talking about the Euthyphro, which was the second dialogue um, of Plato that we got to cover in this course. Um, And as a quick reminder, um, because it was a lot that we covered, um, the central question that we covered in the Euthyphro has now become known as the Euthyphro Dilemma. And the Euthyphro Dilemma simply was, Is something good because God does it? Or does God do something because it is good? And we talked about the two horns of that dilemma. If something is good simply because God does it, that would make morals completely arbitrary. And whatever God would have commanded, whether it be rape, murder, steal, kill, we would have to say those things were good, which obviously does not sit well with our conscience. Or if we say that God only does that which is good, we have the natural inclination to believe that there is this goodness that is beyond God, making God no longer God because he has some standard he must apply to. Um, And we saw that although Plato in the Euthyphro didn't give a definitive answer to that question, we saw that the church fathers, through the voluntarism debates, gave us the answer we were looking for, that God is goodness, so God can only do good. He is limited in the fact that he is so free, he cannot do that which is evil. Um, So when people ask, childish questions. Can God make a rock so big he can't build it? We'd say no, or so big that he can't move it. We'd say no, He can't do that because God can only do that which is in his nature. And because he can only do that which is in his nature, that makes him infinitely free because being able to do anything is something that actually enslaves us. Um, And that was the central idea of the euthyphro. Um, So before we get into Plato today, um, or into Aristotle today, um, we'll talk a little bit about ants. Um, and it's this weird uh, jump that we'll make here into talking about ants, but I read something a while back, and I believe it was by uh, Dr. Polkinghorn, who's a fantastic scientist, uh, really, really great on the anthropic principle and modern arguments for the existence of God, teleological in nature. Um, but Polkinghorn, t- in one of his s- speeches a while back, talked about these certain type of ants, and it's a type of carpenter ant, um, not a carpenter ant, I should say, it's a type of uh, army ant, that uh, they're blind, these ants. And the way that they get around is they follow the pheromones of the ant that is in front of them. And what scientists have found out is that there's a leader of this ant group, and if you could disorient the leader of that ant, since all the other ants are blind and they only follow by the pheromones, that they will blindly follow the one leader, In a circle around and around and around until they all die. Um, And when I heard Polkinghorn talking about this I thought what a perfect analogy for what we're talking about in this course. Um, Because if Plato, as Alfred North Whitehead said, he said all of Western philosophy can be characterized as a series of footnotes to Plato. If Plato went slightly off in the wrong direction, all the philosophers following after him are going to kind of be going off in the wrong direction too. And what we see is this spiral of philosophy from the golden age of philosophy with Plato and Aristotle into the Middle Ages, into the modern era of philosophy and then the postmodern era, where we start to see these philosophers sort of cannibalize each other um, because they can't get to the truth, which we have seen in the incarnation of Christ. So where Plato went off, Aristotle being his student went off and he followed Plato blindly and he kind of goes off in the wrong direction. But once again, we must always keep in mind that just because they don't give us the full answer that we see um, through the revelation of Scripture doesn't mean that they can't teach us anything. Um, So we'll talk a little bit about Aristotle today. Um, Most of you have heard of him before. You know a little bit about him. Um, Even my Intro to Philosophy students, Plato and Aristotle are at least the two that they're semi-familiar with when we get into those classes. Um, Aristotle was born in 384 B.C., so 384 years before Christ, in Stagira, uh, which was Greek Macedonia. And Aristotle is, by most accounts, probably the greatest intellect to ever walk the planet. Um, Aristotle wrote volumously. Um, I know Pastor Vance, and talking to him on the side, he thinks that there's probably no intellect that could match him. If there was any, maybe a man like Jonathan Edwards Um, in the massive scope of the things that Aristotle wrote on. Um, We all know about his famous works, the metaphysics and the politics, but he has works on seashells. He has works on sex. He has works on the interpretation of dreams. He has works on sterility. I mean, he has works on everything. And we only have about one-fifth of the Aristotelian corpus. Most of what Aristotle ever wrote has been lost to us. Um, And what we have from Aristotle, we only recovered in about the 12th century. Most of it was lost, and only maintained within the Islamic world. And then during the Crusades, we recovered most of Aristotle's, or about a fifth of Aristotle's documents. Um, And through the works of great men like St. Thomas Aquinas, we've had the Aristotelian influx into the church. Now, we know much less about Aristotle in our tradition than we do about Plato, um, because we're, uh, the Reformed church has tended to be Augustinian in vain, whereas the Catholic church has tended to be Aristotelian. And that's because the basic history goes something like this We have Plato, who heavily, heavily influences a man by the name of Plotinus. And Plotinus was a man who started a school called Neoplatonism, or New Platonism. And Plotinus, Deeply dim- deeply influenced St. Augustine. St. Augustine, in his early struggles when he was fighting through Manichaeanism and trying to deal with the problem of evil, finally finds some answers that he's looking for in the works of Plotinus. And Plotinus, since he was a Neoplatonist, basically introduces Augustine to Plato, and hence Plato is given to the New Testament church. Um, and so much of the theology. Much of the doctrines of the church are very platonic in structure. Um, Now, on the other side, the other vein, the Catholic side, we have Aristotle. And Aristotle is recovered in the 12th century, and St. Thomas Aquinas writes 39 different volumes on Aristotle. And because of his great focus on Aristotle, there's a huge Aristotelian influx into the Catholic church. So, we see these kind of two dividers. We have the Platonic Christianity of the Reformed Church, and we have the Aristotelian Christianity of the Catholic Church. Now, talk a little bit about Aristotle's early life. Aristotle, this genius man, um, he was raised in the atmosphere of great academic learning and scientific learning. His parents were scientists, and Aristotle um, was one of the first early scientists himself. he studied under Plato for 20 years at the Academy. Plato started a school called the Academy, and Aristotle studied under him for 20 years, um, which has led many people, um, at least in academic communities, to have this debate. Who was the greatest philosopher of all time? Was it Plato? Was it Aristotle? And usually those that are in favor of Plato will say, well, Aristotle studied under this guy for 20 years. Clearly, Plato must be the greater mind. Um, Because as any, I've had students at Mount St. Mary's that have taken maybe three or four of my different classes, and after they've taken the fourth one of my classes, they're like, I've heard that story before. You've used that analogy before. And those are just four classes. And you start to think, well, imagine studying under somebody for 20 consecutive years, and to keep wanting to stay when you're an intellect like Aristotle, that kind of tells you just how great of a mind Plato was. Now, the academic community comes down weighing on this debate usually on the side of Aristotle, say about 65 to 35, it looks like, between philosophers, believe Plato was the greatest, or Aristotle was the greatest, I should say, and 35 believe Plato was the greatest. Um, I think I was on the Platonic side of the divide, and through recent research, reading guys like Alistair MacIntyre and whatnot, I've started to become a little bit more Aristotelian in my thinking, and I think that it would be a great benefit to the church our church especially, if we started to view Christianity a little bit more, at least tweak it in an Aristotelian slant. Um, So Aristotle studies under Plato at the Academy for 20 years. And Plato dies, and I think it's 347 BC, Plato dies. And the natural thought would be, well, Plato dies, his greatest student is Aristotle. Plato even called Aristotle's house the reading shop because he had so many of his own individual books. He had a private library at his house. He was known to be the greatest student in the academy. So most people thought that Aristotle would take over the academy. Plato dies and we see some early nepotism and Plato gives the head of the academy to his cousin and Aristotle's ticked off. And so Aristotle leaves the academy and he goes out and leaves Athens. Um, And when he leaves Athens, it's a very, very tumultuous time in history At this time in history, there's a gigantic army that's forming that is about to come over and take over Greece. Um, That army, obviously, being led by Philip of Macedonia. And Philip of Macedonia is coming in, and he's taking over the Greek empire. And Philip finds out, well, there's this brilliant man in Athens by the name of Aristotle. I want this man to tutor my son. And we all know who Philip of Macedonia's son was, right? Alexander. Alexander the Great. So Philip comes to Aristotle, knocks on his door, and says, well, I'd like you to tutor my son Alexander. Now, this kind of puts Aristotle in a precarious position, right? You have a man who's a Greek man, Aristotle. His country is about to get overridden by this massive Macedonian army, and then the king of that army says, hey, I want you to be the personal tutor of my son. Now, of course, Aristotle's going to say, of course, because if not, it's probably off with his head. So Aristotle spends a good amount of time as a personal tutor of Alexander the Great. And this is Alexander the Great, he's tutoring when he's 13 years old. Aristotle's 42 at this time, Alexander's 13 years old. And Alexander told Aristotle, I do not want you publishing anything that you're teaching me. I don't want this becoming public because Alexander was so captivated by the knowledge of Aristotle, he thought, these truths I want to know for myself, so that when I tell them to people, they look at me as a genius. But if you publish these, then the whole world will know your truths, because clearly you're right. You've seen where Plato erred, and you've shown the light to the world. So don't publish any of that, so I can seem like the great intellect that I am. Now, Philip of Macedonia dies, Alexander the Great ascends, to the head of the Macedonian Empire, and this is really the first world massive empire Alexander the Great has. And at this point, he's a young child, takes over the world, basically. He's in charge of it. He doesn't have any need or any use for the virtue ethics that Aristotle's trying to teach him, so he says, Scram, we don't really need you anymore. And Aristotle is able to go back to Athens. And Aristotle goes back to Athens, and at this time, Plato's cousin, had just died so the head of the Academy is open again and so Aristotle thinks well clearly now I'm the wisest man in the world I just got done tutoring the king of the world they're gonna make me the head of this small Academy and he's passed over again and Aristotle's really really ticked off at this point so he says you know what enough is enough he says Plato is dear to me but dearer still is truth a famous quote from Aristotle he goes I'm not waiting around to become the head of this school. I'm going to start my own school. And so on the Mount of Lysabatos, across the way from Plato's school, Aristotle starts his own school called the Lyceum. And it was called the Lyceum because it was on the Mount of Lysabatos. And then at this point, Aristotle starts his school. It starts to flourish, and it's kind of a rival school to Plato's school. Um, But then Greece rises up again, and they're going to try to overthrow and regain their freedom from the Macedonian kingdom, and Aristotle is now worried because he's like, if Greece rises up again and they take back over their land, they're going to look at me as a traitor because I was just tutoring the king that just oppressed them. So Aristotle flees, and he says very, very famously, he says, I fled to save philosophy from sinning twice, or to save philosophy from sinning a second time. What do you think he means by that? When had they sinned first? Maybe. But when had, when had, when had Athens greatly sinned against philosophy? Socrates. They killed Socrates. Right? You already killed Socrates, and now if, you stay, if I stay, you're going to kill me too. So Aristotle fled, and he went off, and a few years later he passed away. Um, so that's the quick and dirty of Aristotle's life. Now, Aristotle's philosophy, um, you would think, would be very, very similar to that of Plato's because he spent 20 years studying under him. Um, But there's a lot of dissimilarities between the two. Um, And we see these dissimilarities most fleshed out in Aristotle's great works, The Metaphysics and The Politics. And we already discussed how he got the name Metaphysics. Um, It came from Aristotle's students because Aristotle had wrote all these fantastic works on the movements of physical bodies in the universe, and he called those the physica, or the physics. And then they found this discussion on substance, essence, universals, actuality, potentiality, teleology, all these weird things. And the students were like, well, we found this after the physics, so we'll call it the metaphysics, that which is beyond the physical or past the physics. And that's actually the genealogy of where we got the word metaphysics. But in the metaphysics, we see Aristotle giving or rejecting the platonic idea of the forms. And if you remember back to when we discussed Plato, Plato believes that ultimate reality, truth, beauty, goodness, everything that is ultimately real exists in the world of forms. And all of this that you're seeing in front of you is nothing more than the shadow of that universal principle. Now, if you think back to Aristotle... Aristotle was raised in this scientific family and he was disinclined to dismiss the world around him as illusory or as a shadow. He says, no, no, this stuff in front of us has to be the real stuff. This cannot purely be fake. And if you pull out the picture that I gave you there in front of you, um, it's a fantastic illustration of just how much good art can tell us about philosophy and can tell us about the world. Is anyone familiar with this famous Renaissance painting? Anyone know the name? You've seen it before. The School of Athens. Athens. And do you remember which Ninja Turtle painted it? (laughs) Raphael. Raphael. Yeah, this is Raphael's famous School of Athens. And what I did for you here on this handout is I just zoomed in to the very, very middle of Raphael's School of Athens because usually if you take any art history class, they teach you... What the artist is trying to tell you, what is most important to them, they will put at the center of the painting. The things on the periphery are peripherally important to them. Um, So right at the heart of the painting, you see in the School of Athens, you see Plato, who is on your left to the picture, and you see Aristotle, who is on your right. And if you were to zoom out on the picture, you see a horde of other philosophers and wise men and ancient scribes and whatnot. But right at the center of the picture... Raphael paints Plato and Aristotle, saying these were the two central figures of reason, the two central figures of philosophy, the two central figures of thought. And it's very, very important that you see what's going on um, with the two men here. On the left, you see Plato, and he's walking through the middle of all these other scholars. And on Plato's right hand, you see he's pointing up, right? And on his left hand, you see he's holding a book. And it's nice and zoomed in here so you can see what the book is. And Plato is holding a book called The Timaeus. And that was one of his dialogues we haven't discussed in this course, which we won't discuss. Um, But The Timaeus is Plato's account of the creation of the universe. It's his Genesis story. And when you see Plato, he's walking through, holding his account of the universe, how everything was created, and he's pointing up, saying what? Truth is up there. This that we see out here in front of us is not really real. The real thing exists in the world of forms, the universals. So Raphael's telling all of this in that painting. And then if we look to his right, we see Aristotle walking. But Aristotle's hand is like this. It's stretched outward. Aristotle's telling us, no, no, no. True reality is not somewhere else. This right in front of us is true reality. Truth is right in front of us. And if you see what Aristotle's holding in his hand, he's holding a book, too. And if you zoom in closely, you see it's the Nicomachean Ethics, or the Ethica. And that is Aristotle's work on ethics, or what we should do, which was named after his son, Nicomachus. Um, and the Nicomachean Ethics are a fantastic read, um, because they're written from a father, Aristotle, to his son, Nicomachus, saying these are the way or these are the things you should do. This is the way you are supposed to act. This is what you ought to do. This is what you ought not to do. And Aristotle we see in this picture that Raphael drew is giving us a very very different picture of the world than Plato. Reality is in front of us. Focus on the here and now. Focus on living rightly here. Don't focus on some supernatural or something that is beyond the physical. Now All of that can be ascertained just from this picture here, but let's talk about how Raphael came to this conclusion that Aristotle's philosophy was that much different than Plato's. Um, We see it playing out most dramatically in the metaphysics, and this is where Aristotle critiques Plato's idea of forms. Now, instead of believing that universals or ultimate principles exist in the other world, Aristotle thought that universals— or ultimate principles, were embedded within the individual. Now, remember Plato, when he came up with this, he said, there clearly are universals, because I look around the room, and I see Mr. Fick here, and I say, that's a man. And I see Mr. Hammond, and I see, that's a man. And I see Mr. Phillips, and I say, that's a man. But they're all very different looking, right? They look nothing like one another. But there's something about them that I would say man, man, man to. Plato would say they have the universal shadow of manness. They have the eidos of manness, the essence of manness, but they aren't really the man. They're a shadow of what true man would be. Aristotle says, nope, that doesn't jive right with me. I don't think that's correct. It seems like this essence, the manness must be something that's not just a shadow to them. It's something that's deeply embedded within them. In them is the universal principle of manness. And Aristotle would do that because of his scientific background. He, was, he didn't want to dismiss all of this that he saw around him. Um, so Aristotle would say the same thing about virtues. That virtues do not have some kind of ultimate standard outside of us, but virtues are deeply embedded within the individual. So essences are within us. Now... This flies right in the face of what Plato believed. Um, But Aristotle thought this must be the case. And he thought this must be the case because he thought that Plato's forms and his universals were very, what he called, stagnant. We have these stagnant principles that override all life. But he says life doesn't seem to be stagnant. Life seems to constantly be in a state of flux from actuality to potentiality. And he found this out through his scientific research. You look around the world, and you see all the leaves on the trees right now, right? And the leaves are actually green, right? But we all know that they are potentially yellow and red and orange, right? They have this actuality, what they are right now, but they have a potential to be something else. And life, Aristotle thought, was in this constant flux or a movement from what you actually are to what you could potentially be. And Aristotle thought what guided this movement of actuality to potentiality was this idea of a telos. Now a telos is a Greek word which means design or purpose. And Aristotle believed every single thing in the universe was deeply embedded in it with a telos, an individual telos, a design or a purpose for why it is there. Aristotle believed the telos of an acorn would become an oak tree. But we all know that not all acorns become oak trees, right? So some acorns do not get to fulfill their telos. And Aristotle believed the same thing for all the individual human beings of the world. We're embedded with a telos, right? Right now, I actually am something, but I have the potential to be something else. Now, I might not reach that potential, right? I might get involved... In, in, in drugs, right? And I could be thrown off from my telos, or I could just not be steeped in the virtues, so I can't determine what my purpose or what my telos actually is. Now, Aristotle thought that although every individual has a telos, which is right in line with scripture's teaching, right? God has a design, He has a plan for you. Those who He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified, right? God has a plan for all of us, but do all of us reach that plan, right? It's sometimes we don't follow the telos. We don't follow the path. We get lost. Aristotle believed that you could only follow your telos and even know what your telos was if you were deeply steeped in the virtues. And the virtues, what he meant were wisdom, courage, temperance, moderation. Only if you were cultivated, Could you know what your telos was? Now, that does not mean that Aristotle doesn't have some kind of postmodern belief that everyone should just follow their path, right? That's what you hear in modern music these days, right? Listen to your heart. That's what you should do. Aristotle would say, no, 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 no. Don't listen to your heart. Only listen to your heart if your heart has been steeped in the virtues, because then you'll make the right decision. But just to do whatever you think your path is, is complete foolishness. And Aristotle thought this was complete foolishness because he constantly and continually throughout his work stresses the natural inequality of all people. Now, that's something that the modern world doesn't like to hear. But Aristotle stresses, I'll say again, the natural inequality of people. He says mankind is fundamentally unequal. And he says this is a law of nature. If we're to be real scientists and look at the world are we built equally? Now, as a young child, if you would have asked me what my telos was, I would have told you probably up until the age of 21 years old, my telos, my design, my purpose is to be in the NBA. And I truly, from my my heart of hearts, believed I was going to play in the NBA. And I was a horrible basketball player, but I believed, I believed that was my telos and that was my purpose. And the modern world will tell you, no, no, Follow your heart. If that's your telos, pursue your telos. Aristotle would look at me and say, you are an idiot. You're a moron. That's clearly not your telos because there's a natural inequality amongst people, right? We, we're equal under the law and we're equal under God's love. But does that, not, that does not mean we're created equal, right? LeBron James is six foot nine and he can jump 60 inches, right? And he can run a four We weren't created equal. We have different teloses right? For him to pursue basketball would be a good thing, right? That's what he was designed to do. But if I try to teach my little daughter to be an NFL linebacker, right, I'd be crafting her away from her telos, right? That would not be her design or her purpose. And Aristotle constantly stressed the idea that if we try to make all people equal, we are doing great injustice because people should not be treated equally. One of my favorite lines from Aristotle is he says, Justice is not equality for all. He says justice is equality for the equal. When you are equal, you deserve to be treated as equal. And I gave you the example before um, from my class. I tell my class at the beginning of the semester, I say, well, all of them turn in their 10 page research papers at the end of the semester. And I say, you know what? I'm going to give every single one of you a B minus without reading the paper. That would be the height of injustice, wouldn't it? The student that was going to get an F and turned in a two-page paper that was plagiarized, he's like, yes. But the student that worked really hard and was expecting an A on the paper, they say, that's unjust. You can't treat us all as equal. Why? We don't deserve to be treated as equal. And Aristotle stressed that idea. But he focused on this idea of a telos. Every individual has these universal principles embedded within us, and we need to move towards what our design, what our purpose was. Now, the for our purposes, I think the importance of Aristotle has somewhat been lost to the church at the expense of Platonism. We tend to view universals in a platonic view, that the truth of the world, um, all the true things, wisdom, justice, courage, even God, is something that is very, very separate from us, and we have a shadowy version of it. That's it. Whereas the Aristotelian teaching would say, no, 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 those universal principles, those things that are actually true in the world are embedded not only within you, but within the world itself. Now, if you'll bear with me for a minute, I'll give you the Justin version sketch of the entire Bible here real quick. Um, and I think if we look at it, um, we'll see a very, very Aristotelian version of the Bible um, where most of us tend to view the Bible in a platonic sense. If you go to Genesis, and we see the Genesis story, we have a creator God, right? He creates the universe. Now, what is he doing when he's creating the universe? Why would a God create the universe? Well, I think a very fruitful reading of Genesis would be to see that God, in creating the universe, is creating himself a temple, right? He's creating a place for him to be worshipped, for him to be glorified, to bring honor to himself, So the creation story cannot just be God just making some weird universe that he can have people in that can do all kinds of crazy things, kill each other for thousands of years, and then he can save them. But no, why did he create? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question says, what? What's the chief end of man? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. So God created man to bring glory to himself. So God creates this temple in Genesis, and then what does he immediately do? He creates the temple, and then he populates the temple with his own image, right? He creates the temple. He takes the temple, fills it with his own image to bring glory to himself, right? That's a wonderful reading of Genesis that we don't normally see. But then what happens? We have the fall, right? And mankind falls. And because we fall, we lose our union with God. We're separated from God. The holiness of God cannot stand the sin of man. So the image of God has been ruined, and there's a sort of separation that occurs. So he's created a temple, populates it with his image, but now he's separated from that image. What we see later on throughout the Old Testament, we see God then coming to Abraham, right? And he comes to Abraham, right? He's not over here, separate in some other universe. He comes to Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. You are going to be my special people. And he makes a covenant with Abraham. And through Abraham, we have Israel, right? So God, once again, enters the temple to be with his people in a real sense. So he makes the covenant with Abraham. But then we see, once again, what? We see wickedness, right? We see Joseph sold into slavery. And when Joseph sold into slavery, we see Israel sold into slavery. But then what happens again? God remembers his promise to Abraham, comes back to his people, and delivers them from the Egyptians. Right? He delivers them, comes back through the miraculous events of the Passover, through the great leadership of Moses. Right? He delivers the people. And he delivers the people, and then he gives Moses the law. Right? He gives Moses the law He says, this is the way that you are supposed to live. These are the guidelines. And if you remember those guidelines that we talked about last time, they're not just laws. Remember, those guidelines are freedom, right? He's saying, if you do these things, they're going to make you infinitely free. Don't steal. Don't murder. Don't dishonor your parents. Don't put other things before God, and you will become free. Because, as we talked about last time, limitations is what provides freedom, as opposed to just open runway to do whatever we want or a license for licentiousness. So. We all know about that story, right? God gives Moses the law. But one of the most remarkable parts of the whole Old Testament to me is not only does God give Moses the law, he gives him directions for building a tabernacle. So we have Israel delivered from Egypt. They're the new creation headed to the promised land, right? So we can see Israel as almost the new humanity heading to the new Eden, but God doesn't say, all right, I'll see you when you get there. He's like, no, no, I'm coming with you. Right? They build a tabernacle and God is directly following the Israelites. He's, he's carried with them. Right? That's a, mar- a remarkable thing that I, sometimes we always think of God as separate from us in that platonic sense. But Aristotle's idea is, no, no, no. These essences, these universals are embedded within the people. So God is carried along with the people. And then we see later on, we see Solomon, right? Solomon is to build the temple of God, right? So within God's temple, the whole universe, he builds up another temple, a temple for himself to beware, right with his people, not separate from his people, but in their midst. But then once again, what happens? Sin, the people are wicked, and the temple is overrun by the Babylonians. The Babylonians come in, and once again, there's a sort of separation that Israel has with God. And you can see if we view the Old Testament in this way, the whole Old Testament is kind of a story of God wanting to be directly with his people, to commune with his people, but because of our wickedness, the reconciliation is not full. We can't fully be united to God because of our own wickedness. And if you view the Israelites then longing, for this reconciliation with God, by time you get to the New Testament, the events of the New Testament are way more dramatic than if we were just to pick up the New Testament and read, God became man. Well, you you need the backdrop of Israel to understand what that means. The Israelites are waiting for a reconciliation with God. And then finally in the New Testament, we get that dramatic event where God becomes man, not in this weird way where he's over here in the Universal forms outside of us, but he enters humanity, right? He's in there with us, embedded in the here and now, in the person of Christ, to reconcile the world to himself. Right, Pastor Vance probably mentions the verse at least every other week from the pulpit, right? 2 Corinthians 5:19, right? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Right? That's the incarnation. That these people that wanted to be close to God are finally reconciled to God in Christ, who came to us, who is in our midst. He's not separate from us. And then we see Christ, his death, his resurrection, and then his ascension. And when Christ leaves and he's established his church, he doesn't just leave the church, does he? What happens? Acts 2, right? He says, no, 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 you're not, you're, I'm not all separate from you again still. I'm not, don't, don't think about me in this platonic sense. I've given you my spirit. I'm here with you, embedded within you. And I think that's a really, really Aristotelian reading of Scripture. And I don't know if I've gone too far in pushing that idea, but there's a sense where I think that the Reformed Church has always viewed Christianity in and and, and very, very good reasons. Uh, we've viewed this in the Platonic sense due to Augustine, that God is somehow separate from us. But the whole story is, no, God is trying to reconcile the world to himself, and it's always him embedded in humanity here in us. Now, for Aristotle, all of us having this telos, this design, this purpose, he says the only way we could possibly ever follow this telos, to know this telos, to reach our telos, is to be steeped in the virtues. Right? We have to have wisdom, we have to have moderation, we have to have temperance. Well, it's the same thing for us in the church. Right, In order for us to be in union, to be doing what we're supposed to be doing, we have to be steeped in the law of God. Right, We have to have it written on our hearts, we have to love the Word of God. We, have to, we can't just follow our own path like the modern world says and do what makes you happy and get there. No, 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 no. If these things are written on your heart, if you're steeped in them, then you can reach your potential. But the story of Aristotle falls short, right? Because Aristotle believes that if you're steeped in the virtues, if you try hard and you study wisdom, courage, temperance, justice, you'll reach your potential. You'll get there. You'll move towards your moral height, your moral height. We see in the, in the world today um, this great dichotomy, um, what many call the rational, irrationalism of the modern world, um, where no matter what the great political debate of the day is, um, the moderns will say that the world has no teleology, right? If you're a materialist, you believe that the world doesn't have a purpose. It doesn't have any actual grand design to it. It's a bunch of matter bumping into each other but yet you hear the modern world talking about stuff, we're, prog- we're progressing. We're moving forward. We're evolving, right? And those in the church are bigoted. And their culture. They're, they're stagnant. They're not moving forward. Now, that's a very irrational thing for somebody to say that doesn't believe that the universe has a telos. If the universe has no purpose, how could you possibly be evolving and evolving in a proper way. And what force is it that's guiding this proper movement? But the modern world, through some sort of cultural ambivalence, believes that we're moving towards an ultimate design while denying that there's any design. And we're progressing and we'll get there as humanity. Aristotle kind of had this idea, right? If we steep ourselves in the virtues, we could reach our telos. But what do we all know to be the case? Even if we steep ourselves in these virtues, we're not going to be able to reach our full potential. Because what is our full potential? To be completely reconciled back to Christ or back to God. Be completely reconciled to him in the same sense that he had that union with Adam in the garden. But we can't do it. We can't reconcile it. And once again, that's why Aristotle falls a little bit short. He's the ant following Plato and eventually he's going to die. Because we realize we can't do it ourselves. We need to have the reconciliation done for us, right? We can't do it on our own. And that's the essence of Aristotelian philosophy. Everyone has a telos, a design or a purpose. And only if we're steeped in the virtues can you reach that. And that purpose is going to move you from what you actually are to what you potentially can be. Now, the last thing I want to leave you with with Aristotle for today is a miniature sketch of just how important these ideas have become within the theology and the doctrine of the church. Um, Plato and Aristotle's ideas probably are most, I don't want to say violently, probably most dramatically felt in the church's doctrine of salvation. Now, the church's doctrine of salvation has two parts to it, right? There's two prongs to salvation. We have justification and we have sanctification, right? Right? And the Reformed Church, if you had to say, what do we focus on more than the other? Do you think are, are we a little bit more justification focused or sanctification focused? What do we focus on? This is, we focus on justification, right? We are justified in Christ. Whereas the Catholic Church, you see them being a little bit more focused on sanctification, right? Now these are broad, broad brushstrokes. But for our purposes, about as deep as we're going to be able to get. The Catholic Church focuses a little bit more on sanctification. Now, justification is a one-time event, right? It's a universal principle. Christ died, and in Christ, you are justified. Now, sanctification is what? It's the process of moving from actuality to potentiality. It's a movement towards holiness. You've been justified in Christ... And now you are supposed to be coming more Christ-like. You should be coming more holy. A movement, a teleological sort of movement. Now, once again, the sketch that we have, Plato influences Augustine. And Augustine has had the greatest influence on the Reformed Church. And because of that, you see the Reformed doctrine of salvation focusing, or at least emphasizing, justification at maybe somewhat of the expense of sanctification. In the Catholic Church, you have Aristotle, heavily, heavily influenced St. Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas heavily influences the Catholic Church, and hence we have the Catholic Church with a real, real focus on sanctification, that you need to have this movement from actuality to potentiality, the works-based idea. Now, what do we really need? we need a combination of both of these, right? And that's where there needs to be a sort of a reconciliation, right? There is, we are justified in Christ and we are saved by faith in Christ and nothing else. But there is works that need to be done, right? You, you, you will judge what you are done by your works, right? The fruit, you need to see the fruit. And the world needs to see the fruit. And if the world doesn't see the fruit, nothing will change, right? That's most people's biggest problem. Well, I wouldn't say the biggest, but a huge problem with the Christian church, right? We say a bunch of things, but then we act just like the rest of the world, right? There's no stance, right? We have the modern world that's too afraid to stand together as a community within the church. It's individualized Christianity. It's Christianity where it's not going to get me in trouble. It's Christianity where I'm not going to lose my job. Um, And you see very, very rare examples of heroism within the modern church because people are scared. And it's a scary world out there. I know that I have to... uh, Watch my every word when I'm teaching, because if I were to teach Aristotle like this, even at a Catholic uni- or Catholic school like Mount St. Mary's, my job would probably be gone the next week, um, because you can't say certain things like that. Um, but we see that these men, Plato and Aristotle both, have had a massive, massive influence on the history and the structure of Christian dogma. Um, With that being said, I'm not going to give you any more on Aristotle today. Um, Does anyone have any questions on this stuff? No, we ran a little bit late. Any questions? Aristotle, Plato, yeah? When you were talking about Catholic, you actually meant Roman Catholic, not universal Catholic? Well, yeah, the difference if we're talking about one strand of Christianity being more focused on sanctification, I'm talking about Roman Catholic, but not, not universal Catholic, yeah. There'd be... And obviously that's with the broadest brushstrokes, right? Um, Not necessarily every Catholic, but certainly Roman Catholic, yes.